Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, all around the world. Uh, gosh, I feel like I should have that. This is Trish Lambert, and you have landed at the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm here yeah, with right. my co-host, or I'm actually his co-host, Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor. We're hoping our third host, Dave, will show up. That's Hopefully right. he will. And we're here for season five, episode uh, session two. We're talking still pre-production. Tonight is about theme and pacing. Exactly. Yeah, we got to. We're 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 not quite to the point where we're gonna we're gonna be outlining episode by episode what we want to happen all through the season, um, but we're we're gonna be first focusing on the big issue. Uh, you know, sort of major themes that we want to be focusing on and developing over the course of the season. We've been. Um, that's something that's kind of sort of naturally happened over the years that we've found particular themes emerging and we've been more kind of deliberate about that recently uh, to be thinking about that in advance so we can have it in mind as the story's developing um last season i thought that worked really really well i was very happy with our theme for last season um mm-hmm. so we're going to be thinking about that then we're going to be coming back to some of the, still some of the major plot lines that there are some kind of really big picture issues that we need to discuss and in particular the two i am most interested to talk about are Fingolfin and Arathel. Uh, we didn't get to either one of them really last time. Um, and I find in different ways, both of them are very difficult. Um, in fact, privately, I kind of think, or rather I have been thinking for some time, uh, that figuring out how to, ha- how to handle Fingolfin in this season is something I've been, I won't say dreading because I really like the Fingolfin story, um, but I've been anticipating it uh, because I expect it to be challenging. I expect it to be difficult. I think that um, it's one that seems to me harder than it seems at first, right? It's easy to read the story and be kind of drawn into this, like the, the, the amazing and inspiring dynamics of his duel with Morgoth, right? But as soon as I try to kind of put it into the big picture um, and really think through Fingolfin's character and Fingolfin's character arc, the harder I find it really to um, to think through. So we're, we're going to do that. We're going to think about those two characters and, and some other stuff. Um, I think the question of uh, we're probably going to end up talking about some big picture Gondolin stuff in the context of Arathel. That's going to so we need to we, we, we did some good work last season and figuring out how we were going to push the Gondolin story, like what the core narrative of, of Gondolin uh, was. Uh, and we're going to need to continue pushing that in various ways. So uh, then, of course, we're hoping to get to beginning to hash out some concepts of how we want to divide up the season, um, how much time we're going to want to spend on different uh, elements of, uh, of of this chunk of plot here. Um uh, so anyway, that's what we have in store here tonight, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, first, just a couple quick announcements. Uh, this is, this is a, a light announcement day. Some weeks it's like we have a billion things, and only a couple things this week. Uh, one I wanted to mention are Anytime Audit Quarantine Special. There are many, many people who have taken advantage of the Quarantine Special. It's been delightful to see the uh, Anytime Audit Registrations, which is just uh, basically you're able to audit the class, sit in on all the lectures asynchronously. These are all recorded lectures uh, for anything in our course catalog. Um, 
uh, that's available for any time audit. You can get access to it at a special rate. We've kind of opened uh, that up here uh, while everyone, a lot of people have extra time and are, uh, are looking for good productive things to do. Uh, certainly auditing, you know, a brilliant course taught by like Tom Shippey or Verlin Flieger is an excellent way to, you know, or Amy Sturgis, excellent way to uh, uh, invest some, ex- some, uh, some time uh, here during uh, the time of isolation. And, of course, also wanted to mention Signum's online teaching mentorship program. It's a program we just began a couple weeks ago. A lot of people dealing with online teaching, with struggling with online teaching, you know, kind of thrust into it for the first time. Uh, and uh, we're here to help. We've been uh, uh, doing a, a lot more of this lately. Uh, I'm making plans for a mentorship session I'm running next week, next Wednesday, um, uh, with a university down in uh, North Carolina. So I'm, uh, it's, it's a time when a lot of, especially now that, uh, you know, there was a time when many schools were really kind of hoping that the, you know, the shutdown would only be for a couple weeks. Right. And it's kind of becoming clearer and clearer to people that it's going to be longer than that. So, um, uh, just want to encourage anyone who's struggling. We do individual mentorship and group mentorship. And the concept of the mentorship is very simple. It's just not just thinking about the mechanics of like, how do you get online and, and run a class, but really thinking about pedagogy and curriculum. It's not, it's just not the same. Online teaching is a wonderful tool. There's so many opportunities, so many things you can do, but they're not the same. Um, there are different sets of advantages and disadvantages. And so people who have never done it before, it's hard to figure out. I mean, it takes a lot of trial and error to figure out what stuff is going to work well, what doesn't work well. How can I take my curriculum and my teaching goals and figure out how can I better achieve those, you know, in the kind of the new system I'm going to have to use in, in going online. And so, um, you know, at Signum, we've been doing this and we've experienced 10 years of trial and error. So we're, we're happy to help people uh, think that through. So um, anyway, that's uh that's what our mentorship program is. So if you or uh, your school district or your school, you know, you think this is something your department chair should know about or something like that, uh, please uh, do uh, go and check out signumuniversity.org slash mentorship. We would be happy to help. All right. Dave Kale's here. And Dave, Dave Kale has come just in time. All right. Let's bring in Dave. Hang on, Dave. I unmuted you, but let's do better than that. Let's actually make it so that you can see the questions as questions. well. And Dave Kale, and Dave Kale came, uh, as Nick says, absolutely. Hey, Dave. That's right. Dave Kale came. <laughs> That's right. Well, welcome. Some, the same Which day epic. of Passover is this? Is this something we can connect to Passover? <laughs> what Dave, Dave's Advent? On the fourth, <laughs> fourth evening, Dave Kale came. <laughs> right. Right. Yes, you're right, Stephen. He did arrive precisely when he meant to, right after the announcement. So we're just ready to talk about the theme, Dave. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. Absolutely. Excellent. That, the mentor program sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's been it's been great. We've uh, we've we're connecting with a really diverse group of people. We're uh, like just in the past. Uh, you know, over the course of this like week, we're uh, mentoring with both a. Uh, 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 four-year university in um uh in north carolina and with a community uh uh language and uh esl 
uh, organization, teaching organization in Phoenix. So, you know, very, very different groups of people experiencing very, you know, different challenges and trying to figure out how to do what they normally know how to do really well online. It's been it's been fun. So. All right. So theme. Um, We got a bunch of different suggestions um, and we do have. Uh, sort of some challenge, as uh, our notes suggest here, some challengingly divergent plot lines, a lot of uh, sort of separate things. We had a uh, a bunch of people. In some ways, the theme for season four was kind of easy. It kind of suggested itself since the, you know, one of the, the primary themes that connected so many of the events that were going on in season four uh, was the question of suspicion and trust and distrust and uh, and uh, the the conflict and reconciliation. So that the whole idea of forgiveness and reconciliation is the theme of season four. Um, I was... Well, not hard in a lot of ways. Um, this is, I think, harder, um, and I don't have as clear an idea. Um, one of the things that... So when I think about, like, kind of the... You know, I get trying to sort of back up and look at the big picture of this season, like we were... Like I was just talking about with season four, there are a couple things that we notice, right? One of the major things, of course, that's happening, as we discussed last time, is the arrival of the men. So the questions of mortality are one obvious issue that's going to come up, right? And not only questions of mortality and immortality, but the questions of, uh, like, just the whole difference in outlook and perspective, right? The, The ways in which the arrival of the men and the elves' interactions with the men is going to kind of challenge the status quo in some sort of fundamental ways, right? Like, they just, they don't look at the world in the same way. And so, in as much as the elves are connecting with the men and associating with the men, a lot of the sort of assumptions that they're going to be making are going to be challenged, right? So, again, it's not just about death in the sense that the men die of old age and the elves don't, Um but, of course, the ways in which that fact, um, you know, the divergence of the fates of the two children, the two uh, groups of the children of Iluvatar, um, uh, Im- impact, you know, and inform the way that they look at the world. And so showing how those two things interact, that's certainly a thing that's going to be happening a lot of the time uh, in season five. So we could think about something in those directions uh, for a theme. Um when I again, when I, I ask, you know, another answer to the question of what's like some of the major thing, like what's what's one of the, you know, an, another one of the major issues of this season. Um, this is our first big downward turn, really. I mean, I, I, look, the kinslaying was a pretty big downward turn. I'm not trying to say it wasn't, but um, this is things have been going reasonably well, <laughs> right in Valerian so far. Um, the Dagor Bragalak is really good. I mean, remember that's the the thing which is going to inspire the sentence. Uh, you know, war ceased completely, never again after that. After this time, right? I mean, there's not going to be a real time of peace again in Valerian. So that's what I mean when I say like it's. It's not exactly like we've reached the pinnacle, but of course, with the way that we handled season four, right? Um, yes, we had the 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 Glaurung thing, but even the Glaurung thing can be sort of spun as I mean, it, it was a victory, right? 
And certainly someone like Fingolfin is going to spin it as evidence that the siege is working, right? And that the siege is viable. So it's all good, right? Um, and of course, we ended with like the, the you know, the be- moving into beautiful Gondolin, right? And everything is going according to plan there. And we ended with the wedding, right? I mean, we had all these happy notes that we ended uh, season four on, Um but it's going to be a pretty steady downhill grade from here. There are going to be high individual high points, right? Though none of them untouched by tragedy. Um, but the Dagor Bragalak is really the beginning of the of the the downward slide, uh, as far as the cheerfulness of the plot is concerned. So thinking about things like loss, um, thinking about things like. Um, uh, uh, the, the seeds of evil, of course, inspired by the uh, uh, by that line, uh, that metaphor used in the Maiguin story. Um, thinking about things like division and 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 stuff. That's all of that seems like that could certainly certainly also be relevant. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, Maria is saying that she thinks that mortality, the mortality and mortality thing seems to lean towards both loss and the activity versus waiting. Um, and that, you know, that is one way of capturing what I was describing. That is the human versus elvish point of view, right, where the elves are content to let things be. I mean, there's the... Um, yeah. Oh, I agree, Oakwig. That that sentence, you know, that, that, that phrase, a dark seed of evil was sown, right, is... He says it gives him chills every time. Yeah, totally agree. It's a it's a wonderful, wonderful line, very powerful image. Um, but um, uh, anyway, I I do um, I th- I think that's a good way of thinking. It's a good way of thinking about the sort of I don't know what cultural, psychological, uh, spiritual differences, uh, motivational differences uh, between. Uh, elves and humans. Um, but but I think there's more to it than that. Or rather, I'm not convinced that that's going to fit perfectly for the season as a whole. Um, there are elements of that. I mean, that's going to come up. There will be some people who are like, let's just holding pattern. We're good, right? Let's just, things are good. Let's just focus on having things be where they are. And some who are going to be like, no, let's do things. Let's, let's, you know, go out and get them. And we certainly will see differences between the human point of view and the elven point of view when it comes to that. But I have a hard time accepting that as like the dominant theme of the whole season, mostly because we're going to get divisions even among the elves that we need to have divisions even among the elves as far as what we do. I mean, there will be some who are going to be like, hey, the leaguer is working. Let's just keep it up. No need to change anything. And there are going to be some who are going to be saying, no, we need to act. It's not okay. We cannot be content with the status quo. We have to move forward. Um, again, that this so one could say, well, that just means taking this theme and and not just simplifying it, you know, along racial lines. Okay, um, uh, perfectly, um, uh, perfectly fine uh, for us to do that. Um, but um, anyway, I. Uh, I'm not sure. One of the things, probably the one of these themes that I find most interesting, and Rihanna, I think it was your suggestion, um, uh, 
and I hadn't hadn't been thinking about it at all, but once you suggested it, I thought it was a really, really interesting idea. And that's the idea of change, this un- unexpected change. One of the things, I mean, it gets stated a couple times, but it's one of those things, like, I remember like reading over that line when I was younger and just like not getting it or not like taking it literally. Right. Um, And that is the reference to the fact that the years of the sun wear differently than the years before the sun. That is once the sun rises, the passage of time change happens faster in middle earth after the rising of the sun. It's not just a, it's not just that change appears to arrive faster or, you know, gosh, time flies when the sun is going up and down, right? Like it uh, doesn't it seem only yesterday. Like it's not just like literally something changes in the atmosphere in the in the in, like Middle Earth is different after the rising of the sun and change happens more quickly. Um, that's a thing in Tolkien's world. And it would be interesting to me to see. I don't know if we could really adapt that concept, the concept of change, of the inevitability of change. Um, and with it, I think, the inevitability of loss and of decline, um, that things that are great and beautiful in their beginnings um, wear and fade and wither in Middle-earth. Um, so we can get loss, finding meeting and losing, we could get, um, uh, that plays into the, you know, the acting versus waiting, you know, the activity versus inactivity, uh, idea, those who are kind of more in tune with this rapidity of change, right. Um, who recognize that, uh, you know, the time is something to be, you know, seized, right. Needs to be seized. We can't just, uh, live the kind of life that um, uh, the elves were living in Valinor, right? Because it's just not like that anymore. And the other thing I think that this theme would work for is this is, we see men in this episode, I mean, this season. Mm -hmm. And that's changed. That's literally before the elves' eyes. Andreth, great example. We've got her young, we've got her middle-aged, we've got her old. They, for the first time, are seeing other beings change and for elves rapidly changing yes absolutely so and just that alone right and i wonder if that could be used as a mechanism essentially to draw their attention to it i mean like the first reaction i would think of the elves to that would be like wow they're sure different right like that doesn't happen (laughs) to us like it's a good thing with you know we don't have to go through that like phew um but then of course as they realize actually yeah no we might not be you know going gray and dying of old age like the men are but we, in right. fact, we also are subject to this to, right. to this change. Like this is this isn't just men, right? This is uh, this is something that is intrinsic to Middle Earth under the sun. Um, well, and that could be the arc of the season. Actually, is the elves being you know kind of completely ignorant of that, or not? Or you know, like yeah. they, like you were saying, you know, they don't to the by the end of the season, they're like, well, gosh, you know, it's not just them that are changing. We actually are, too. I mean, that's right. kind of a big thing. Yeah, a big, I, I, it is. It's big a big shift. moment in the history of, you know, elves in Middle-earth. Now, Stephen, right. um, uh, now, Stephen, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. How many syllables is it? I feel like I'm playing charades. <laughs> how many syllables? No, but seriously, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I want to make sure I pronounce your last name correctly because we have another Stephen uh, in, in class tonight. So I don't want to I don't want to confuse people. The four syllables. So four. He said uh, four. Horiuchi? Horiuchi. 
Is that is that so? I wasn't sure how to pronounce that uh, that first I. Um, anyway, okay. So as Stephen Hor- Horiuchi says, um, we have um, uh, yes. In a, in a sense, they could have or maybe should have noticed this change last season. But I actually kind of think it's cool to introduce it, not in the first season after the sun rises, but in the second season after the sun rises. Because one of the things they will be realizing retroactively is that it this is something that has been happening all along, right? But they didn't really notice. They weren't really focused, especially since in season four. Season four is all about, I mean, remember all the building that happened in season four, right? We're about constructing things. We're about establishing things. So, and so to some extent that change happened is something like they knew they were brand new. They had to set up kingdoms. They had to set up cities. They had to establish relationships. So of course things were changing because there had been displacement. There had been disruption, right? Um, so one of the things that could be happening in this season is the elves saying like, okay, Essentially, not that they literally say this, but, you know, the perspective would be, okay, so we knew that things kind of had to change in order to, you know, it changed for the Sindar because the Noldor arrived. It changed for the Noldor because they were, you know, moving house and many other things besides that. Right. And there were conflicts and issues, but there could still sort of be the assumption that once the dust settles, right, once we've moved in and, and kind of gotten everything broken in around here, you know, in Beleriand, that we're going to sort of settle back into a nice, tranquil, elvish pace of life like Valinor. And that that's the goal, right? The goal is to establish realms here that would be like the realms in Valinor. Even the Leaguer can fit within that picture because, of course, Valinor has walls. The, you know, Valinor is, if not actively under siege, prepared for a siege, Right. That's why you have the Pylori. So, uh, uh, you know, the idea well, that s- we've built those I defenses s- and then we have, you know, we're trying to build a, a kind of a little blessed realm under, you know, below it, south of it, you know, fine. I, I could see why the elves would miss last season, would miss this last season. Yeah. Because as you're saying, they're the changers. Last season, they were the changers. So yes. their focus is on, they're the agents of change. They're, they're unaware you know, they, that like you said, they're changed. the ones doing the change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're the ones doing all the changing. And like you say, oh, yeah, well, when this is all done, we'll just go back to the way it was right. kind of thing. Yeah, right. So you're right. Yeah. And so if uh, and Stephen, you're uh, you're absolutely right. Again, um, Turgon is like the poster child for the one extreme end of this spectrum. Right. The one who is most focused on not changing, building his hermetically sealed kingdom. Uh, as a replica of Tyrion. Right? Oh, yeah, so if there's right. anyone Absolutely. among the elves who's trying to go back to a Valinorian status quo, it's Turgon, right? Um, Which again, sir, can may be part of the issue Arathel has. Exactly. Right. That opens that up pretty clearly, right? right? If yeah. that is the point of, if that, if there, if that is one element anyway, of the, if, if Arathel, right. we had already talked about the idea that Arathel's mm-hmm. departure eventually was not going to be just about discontent, but rather about insight, right? Mm-hmm. That Gondolin is failing of its office. Um, mm-hmm. If she was sold, we had her sold on that by Turgon in season four as Gondolin is like, this is a, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm on a message. I'm, I'm on a mission from God, right? <laughs> I'm on a mission right. from Olmo, right? <laughs> to set this up. And it's going to be a critical element here in the preservation of our people. Like it's going to play, this is, you'll be playing an important role 
right in the defense of our of the people in our lands and everything else and this whole leaguer and and alliance that we have set up but once he's there once he's in uh gondolin that that begins to kind of turn inwards increasingly right and so that he ceases to think more and more he ceases to think about the others outside and instead increasingly just thinks about gondolin itself as not a means but an end Right. Um, right. Now, obviously, we can't make that shift happen too quickly and too absolutely with Turgon. We need to give him a while before he really gets there to the point where he's refusing the messenger from Olmo. Um, uh, and we've got a number of seasons before he gets there. But Arathel can see it coming. Right. It's not happened yet, but she can see it coming. So I do think that that is that that kind of opens that up. So if she's more sensitive to the fact that, like, you know what? No, like we it's not just it is a impossible for us to try to recreate that tranquil unchanging valinorian ever noon experience right like that's not going to happen here in middle earth but more it sh- we shouldn't be trying to do that like that's not the point of what is happening here we're we're missing the plot if that's our goal um and so like so I, I can see that I can see that working. Um, and um, the other end of the spectrum uh, among the elves, I mean, not, not counting the humans, because, again, all of the humans are like, there are. I don't think there are going to be any of the humans who are going to be on the Turgon side of the scale. Exactly. Right. Uh, but of the elves, the one who is, I think, on the furthest extreme away from Turgon has got to be Mithros. Right. Because if anyone has changed, if anyone has experienced the reality of how life in Middle Earth changes you, it's Mithros. He has experienced change. Right. Um, And also is invested by his experience uh, in in his imprisonment on Thangorodrim. He's the only one of the elves who has something like this kind of urgency. Right. An almost human like urgency um, to do things. And get them right. done, and uh, lead the uh, the war on on Morgoth. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, um, good, yeah, good. Uh, Nick, that's a great point. Nick points out that uh, um, the elves, the way that the elves take in the humans, there's even like a sense of giving into the Valinorian impulse, right? The way in which. For many of the elves, bringing the humans into the elven realms, it's like the Valar bring, bringing the elves into Valinor, right? Um, not all of them are thinking that way, but for some of them, I think that we can make a lot out of that parallel, right? And that can be one of the points of debate, right? That this is not, this is not about welcoming our junior cousins into the, our own little, you know, second-rate blessed realm, you know, our mostly blessed realm, our partially blessed realm, right? Um, but rather, this is, uh, these are these are allies and friends, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I was thinking about um, your point, Trish, about the, the, the difference between season four and season five, because it's not like, it's not like things weren't changing, but, but that in season four, the elves were kind of more the agents of change mm-hmm. and and, the, and the, the difference this season is that now things are kind of changing around them. And I was thinking like, I can't, I can't really, I can't really articulate it very well, but there, the, that really is an important point that like, it's, it's quite different when 
like I think especially for elves, I think because I think like the the quintessential experience of the elf is that like if you don't do anything, nothing happens in some sense. Like mm-hmm. you know that that if the elves are kind of just sitting back, then like the world doesn't change around them. And like especially with the arrival of the men, um, that's what really changes. Like now, like if they sit if they sit back and do nothing, like things things continue on and actually change quite rapidly without right. without them being mm-hmm. even involved. Right. Um, and, and you're right. Like there, there's something like there's definitely a sea change or a phase shift of like the way the story works. And if you and you and you really think about like all of the all of the major events that are about to follow, um, you know, like uh, um, that all and, and that in which in which men are a catalyst in each one of those Baron and Luthien and Turin and Tour and all those like it, it's pretty like when you look at it from that point of view, it's like kind of. Like this is such an interesting and exciting point in the story. Yes, yeah, it is. Uh, Brian Dimmick makes a really interesting point. He said, "You know, you could you could argue that this is the point in the whole larger story um, when the elves move from being the primary agents of action uh, to reacting to events and declining and trying to prevent uh-huh. things changing, um, and even I would say, of course, in the latter extremes, escaping." Right. Just isolating themselves and letting the world change around them as they like hold on to their sheltered enclaves, which they try to protect from change as much as possible. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And obviously we're not talking about flipping a switch in this season, you know, between those things. And obviously there are going to be many examples of elves who do act right. Elves who do not go in that direction that Brian was just describing. But I agree with him. That is something we see of elves a lot of the time, right? That is a major uh, theme and is, I think, definitely one uh, that certainly increases uh, as we, uh, as we, as we go forward. That's why I find this suggestion. This uh, it's in some ways, uh, when I start off just kind of looking at the list of suggestions that folks on the discussion board made, and again, I, I, I think they're all really interesting suggestions. The uh, change uh, didn't strike me as like an obviously compelling theme for season five, but the more I've thought about it, I'm like, this is actually really interesting. Um, and because it enables us to do almost all of the rest of these things, right. Um, uh, to show, yeah, again, like, you know, death and mortality, um, opportunities for like learning and understanding for, 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 uh, both learning about like, ed- uh, are we going to adapt or are we not going to adapt? I mean, this is a big question for elves anyway, right? Are they going to hold on? Um, are they just going to turn inward or are they going to be willing to interact with the world that's changing around them? Um, I get the, the you know, reality I, of loss, loss and decline. I mean, there's lots of things. I wonder if this thought, this idea of the elves kind of being at heart wanting to preserve and not change, you know, get things the way they want to not change, because that's what we're seeing in the third age also. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. what we're seeing in the third and fourth age, you exactly. know, that, that that's kind of how they are. <laughs> and we continue to see it. And that may be something we want to keep in mind, that that's kind of their ground of being through the whole entire saga right is right. their tendency to want to retain and conserve and keep in amber if you will mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah agreed and i do um uh so brian was also just um uh 
saying that, of course, one possible problem with choosing change as the theme uh, is that it's going to apply to a lot of future seasons uh, and we run risk of overusing it. I do think, though, in my mind, that's almost a good reason to use it because when we do have sort of important moments of change later on, um, we can be... So on on the one hand, when you look back at the... uh, uh, themes that we have been developing over the course of the first four seasons, it's not like any of them have ceased to be relevant, right? We right. built off those as we go through, yeah. you know, the importance yeah. of the, you know, the, the, the establishment really of the Valar working together. Yeah, it really is cumulative, right? right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the initial yeah. divisions between, you know, Melkor's folks and Manway's folks and uh, the problems that mm-hmm. were happening back in season one, well, Nothing's changed, right? That those are still the issues in a lot of ways, and uh, we can see how the concerns that we highlighted in season one, you know, have set the stage for things that have for everything that has come after. The question of elven home in season two—that is the fundamental question of season two: Where do elves belong? What is the what is the what is the purpose uh, of of elves? It's another way I might characterize the theme of season two was like purpose, calling, like destiny, like what is your what are you for? Uh, as, uh, uh, as, well, okay. It's, I think Shagrat <laughs> who says that, so I don't necessarily want to quote him, but, um, uh, but anyway, um, I, as a famous orc once yes, said, as a famous orc once said, <laughs> what are you for? Um, but, um, uh, anyway, yeah. So, um, uh, that, that, that question of what is the purpose? What is the calling of the elves? Where do they belong? What, what is their, what is their function? Um, what is their role? Um, again, that is still again a question which people yeah, are, are, right. are, they're trying to figure out still. Right. Um, the question of rebellion relationship with authority and, and the, you know, so we got, you know, between from Feanor, um, in the, you know, his oration under Torchlight in Tyrion in episode one, leading to the Kinslaying, you know, all the way down to the, the problems between the people of Fingolfin and the people of Feanor um, uh, down by the end. I mean, that's, that's uh, again, obviously something, the Oath of Feanor, something that is still with us and will be for some time. Um, uh, reconciliation, obviously, is going to be, you know, forgiveness and reconciliation. Lots of opportunities uh, for uh, for the deployment of those ideas as we move forward, too. So, again, th- that that we'd be bringing up something that is going to kick off a trend uh, and that we're going to want to come back to a lot is, to me, a positive sign uh, that possibly yeah. we're on to something here. But it also just seems to me as such a key idea in Tolkien's world and we kind of need to bring it up soon, right? This whole idea of like, now that the sun is up, mm-hmm. things are, are different, right? You know, the idea of the change under the sun is, uh, I think it's not too soon to, uh, and may right. soon be too late to really be reflecting back about that. Um, it's one thing to say they didn't notice it in season four because of the reasons we've already talked about. It's another thing to say that like by season seven, they're going to be like, Hey, have you noticed that? Like, <laughs> Things are kind of different around here. Um, you know, it might, it might just be the fact that we're all getting slaughtered every, you know, few decades, but it might, it might be, I think there's something else to it, right? It's uh, now in the, at the tail end of this time of peace would certainly be the time to, the time to talk about that. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So let's see what we can do with that. 
And again, we have lots of opportunity to bring in almost every other suggestion uh, in some ways without making that the central core focus, but instead continually coming back to what is the response to change? Another way of like, you know, I often like to think of these themes in terms of like questions, right? Questions that were to which there will be different people will have different answers, like different characters will have different answers and different plot lines will suggest different answers uh, to, uh, to these questions. Um, and for change, you know, sort of my question would be like, what is, what is a, the right relationship to have with change? Right. You know, that's going to be one of the, you know, uh, as you said, um, uh, Trish, very, very truly, you know, to try to catch things in amber. Right. Is that the You're right. Right. is that the goal? Is that the is that a, is, is that a good way to respond? to It's a way to respond to change. Right. To just try to stop it. Try to avoid it. Mm-hmm. Try to prevent it. Um, do you do you run to it? Do you run with it? What are the consequences of doing either one of those things? Right. Um yeah. 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 And preparedness for change, Rian. And I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. And, you know, as I think about, for example, uh, third and fourth age Lorien, third age Lorien and Rivendell, uh, it's it's like by the time we get to that point in time, the elves have realized that they can't stop it everywhere. Right. So what they've compromised for is, OK, we're going to find these few little places we still can keep as it you know as we want it kind of thing well it's going to be interesting it's going to be an interesting thing to deal with down the road substantially down the road um and (laughs) which we could even begin planting the seeds for now in season five Celebrimbor. what about Celebrimbor? right all these rings of power the whole point of the elvish rings of power is like you know i can just imagine um uh, you know, like a, a like a, a sales pitch from Celebrimbor, right? To like other <laughs> elf lords, be like, so if you're anything like me, you're an elf lord who desires to bring a halt to change and to create an enclave in which you can recreate the glories of the old world and not have the encroachment of time impinging on your nice little paradise. Am I right or am I right? Right. Okay. If so, do I have the product for you? Right. Um, you know, yeah, like that's, that's, um, obviously I'm slightly exaggerating, uh, uh, but, um, you know, kind of teasing him here, but. I don't remember if this was the case or not. Is that, are we going to have this be like his reason for doing that? His reason for making those rings is this, is this. I think we could kind of plant it, right? I mean, we've introduced Celebrimbor. He was a character in last season. Um, For sure. So, and, and now you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, Stephen, that, uh, Sauron is obviously involved in that and the, the, the direction that the rings of power go, the elvish rings, of, even the elvish rings of power, which Sauron didn't touch, are influenced by Sauron, who does not have their best interests at heart. Right. So, yes, part of that is quite kind of influenced by the uh, 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 Sauron's corruption, but not all. That also right? could be how Sauron hooks Calabrimbor in the first place is, hey, this is a way you can, you know conserve and maintain and keep things mm-hmm. under you mm-hmm. know how you want it to be kind of thing yeah 
Yeah, quite, um, quite, quite, quite possibly. Yes, Stephen Cover says that uh, uh, Sauron could be offering an answer to the question the elves are already asking. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. absolutely. Exactly. This that's is not exactly. an issue that's going to go away. Again, I'm not saying I, I don't know how much we want to go into the Sauron thing now. I mean, the forging of the rings of power is some time off in the future from here. Uh, but but yeah, you know, when we think about. Uh, kind of just as when we were applying the theme of reconciliation and forgiveness, we were looking at our different characters and seeing like, you know, who are going to be positive examples, who are going to be bad examples, people who refuse to forgive or have a hard time. You know, so we've got like, you know, Thingol versus uh, Kelborn right there in, in, in Doriath that we were working on as like two examples of people who were you know, not responding in the same way to the opportunity to uh, be reconciled and to forgive others. Um, but, um, um, but at the same, so at the same, you know, we, we need to be thinking in similar kinds of ways to like, who's going to react one way, who's going to react another way. Like I said, uh-huh. Turgon seems to me a good example for the one side. Uh, Mithro seems to me a good candidate for, for the other, not necessarily an absolute extreme. I don't know, but he seems to me potentially we could take him that way. Um, uh, uh, someone, Nick, I think was suggesting Finrod as kind of leaning in the Turgon-ish direction um, and that even we could take his, like, of all of the elf-human relationships, his relationship with Beor could be most closely parallel to the Valar welcoming the the elves into Valinor. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when you know, the House of Hador, it goes up into the north in Hithlam, they're more like allies, right? The, you know, joining together in a in a joint project, right? Remember, uh, Peer of Elven Kings, right, uh, is the direction that Hador is, uh, is going in. Um, and Rian and I love that suggestion that Finrod we can show some change in Finrod's character, that he has his, like, natural impulse, right, is towards that kind of preservationist, that kind of uh, resistance to change, that sort of thinking about things that way, and have his relationship with Andreth and Andreth's influence on him um, be shifting him to understand more and better the human point of view. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, Marie says, uh, Finrod is the most disappointed by human mortality. Yeah, the death of Beor is a great example of like it, the, the mini Valinor plan not working, right? You can try to set up a mini blessed realm um, and you can try to bring in the humans to share in your mini blessed realm. Like the Valar in turn brought your parents or grandparents in to Valinor to share in their blessed realm, but it's not going to pan out long term, right? Cause they're going to wither and die. Right. Apart from the fact that your kingdom is eventually going to be, you know, conquered and taken over by a dragon before that all of your allies are going to come in and die on you right so again it's if he thinks that he can do that it's an illusion right so i can see a a, an arc with him where he starts off in in much more in the 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 sort of neo-valinorian camp uh and then through his own experience with Bayor, Bayor's death impacts him significantly and then his 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 relationship with andreth um i like that i like that yeah, spoiler alert, says Stephen Cover. Yeah, sorry. Didn't mean to bring up the dragon issue. Forget I said that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
And Marie is absolutely right. Finrod is more philosophically inclined than the other Noldor. Fingen isn't thinking through things in the way that Finrod does, right? Um, and maybe that's one of the reasons, Marie, why Fingen is quicker to accept the humans as just peers, as just allies, right? Um, you know, here we are on the front lines up here in the north, and uh, they want to come and be on the front lines with us. You know, great. We will, uh, we will accept that. Um, Werewolf and Golfin beyond this scale. Ooh, Rhiannon, that is such a hard question. I'll come back to Fingolfin. Again, I find him hard. Maybe I'm making too much of it, but I find him hard in this season. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Um, uh, yeah, I think, I think this will work. I think we've got a lot of opportunities here uh, to both set up future stories to, uh, and I mean, this discussion on this theme has already borne fruit in one sense in that, as I pretty sure I said two weeks ago, it was not really clear in my mind. Remember I was saying that we've got the, you know, the three kingdoms, right. Uh, of men. I mean, the three kindreds of men. Uh, and we had a clear distinction between the people of Haleth and the, the others, right. You had like two of the three groups, move in with the elves. And one of the groups says, no, we're good. We're staying independent, right? And so the divergence of their choices was clear. What I was saying last time is that it wasn't yet clear to me how we were going to differentiate the people of Beor from, you know, the people of Hador. Um, and I, uh, this already, I think we've already made some progress in doing that, right? Mm-hmm. Um not by thinking about necessarily uh, not by coming at it from the question of how how might the nature of the decision being made by the uh, by the humans differ, but thinking about the relation, the, the difference in the, uh, the relation with the with the men. So what if what if the, that fundamental difference is that the you know, the people of Hador, the people who are moving up into the north, into Hithlam what they see themselves as doing is, you know, rolling up their sleeves and setting to work alongside the elves in the maintenance of this siege, whereas the people of Beor see themselves retiring from the cares of the world, right? They've, they're being accepted into a, a land of bliss. They've, they found what they were seeking, right? They heard that there was a light in the West and they found it, right? This is it. This is it. I mean, look, like they found these gorgeous, I mean, especially Finrod. Remember, Finrod's all about the bling, right? So, <laughs> like, there's, man, like, this is um, spectacular, the, what they have found. And I can imagine the people of Bior uh, saying to each other, like, we've found the good life, right? Um, this is certainly everything we had hoped for and more. They're going to be disillusioned as Finrod is also disillusioned, right? That that's, that's not... Um, and then, it, of course, it would be kind of fun if he is the one who sort of leads them to be thinking um, uh, this isn't actually going to work out, right? What if Finrod is the one, after he has his change of perspective, he is the one who has to come to the people of Beor and say, I was wrong, you know, I was wrong. I, I thought I could offer you guys sanctuary that, you know, we could live the blessed life together retreating from the world um, and we can't we can't that can't happen Um, I don't know 
I don't know. It's one idea. Um, we can maybe refine Finrod's character arc there some and kind of work that out. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. Steven says that he sees Fingolfin as more pro-change because he's the one who advocates the assault on Angband. Yeah. We'll come back to Fingolfin. <laughs> I'm not going to be drawn. I, 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 I want to, we'll get there, but I, yeah, I, I, I have issues. I have issues. Um, uh, yeah. Karita asks, how much does it matter to the story to have a clear takeaway about if there's a right or if there isn't, or, you know, is or isn't a right way to handle a changing world? Yeah. No, I don't think that we are necessarily pushing an answer to that question. The point of the question isn't that it, you know, it has a right answer that we reveal at the end, right? But rather, this is a question that lots of people are answering that in different a question. ways. Yeah, you're establishing yeah. it as a yeah. question. Because I, I would think this, like you said, like we said, this is a, you know, themes are building on each other. So this is going to be another piece of the cumulative yeah. You know, yeah. environment that I think is going to go multi-season. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and we do want to illuminate an elven viewpoint, Marie. I agree. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and that's why I, if, if we were to do what I just described with Finrod, and again, we may decide that we want to shift that or alter that in some way, but if we want Finrod to have that kind of trajectory, for him to be the one who really sort of changes most in his attitude towards change, right? The meta change of Finrod being one of the major, um, uh, you know, plot threads in a sense, uh, thematic threads, uh, of the season. If we do that, then, um, Murray, in my mind, then he would be the one who would be kind of our instrument to convey, um, both by, you know, direct voicing at the beginning and contrasting him with other people as he changes, uh, as we go along. Um, I definitely think, uh, think that happens. And then, yes, Stephen, exactly. Uh, those elves who are still not okay with change and think that they can avoid it, get a river of fire in the face at the end of the season. <laughs> so change, change is a coming one way or the other, um, for good or ill. It is the end of this, of the leaguer of, Ang band that you have known. Um, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, Tony's wondering if there's a place for Galadriel to verbalize this question as she'll be a ring bearer later on. It's so funny that you mentioned Galadriel because I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, mm-hmm. of all these people that are in the story right now, only Galadriel, Celeborn, and uh, Kyrdan are going to still be with us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know. And we had Galadriel as a major focus of change. You know, like she was mm-hmm. one of the major characters who was undergoing a transformation over the course of last. I mean, if we think about like where the character was in, in episode one versus where the character mm-hmm. is in episode 13, Galadriel is one of the biggest changers. Uh, She's kind more, of at the far end of the spectrum, isn't she? She's she kind of been. like yeah. the poster child for change yeah. in Elves. Yeah, she seems yeah. to adapt and embrace it better than many. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I don't know. I mean, of course, Goad—it's Goadriel, right? So, like, <laughs> making Goadriel be 
near the center of the action at almost any time seems like not a bad call, right? I don't, I don't think we can overplay Goadriel exactly. Maybe we can, but it would be a little hard, I think, to overplay Goadriel. Um, though at the same time, I think that if she's not at the center of the action and is more sort of withdrawn from the primary character, you know, plot arc yeah. of this semester, that yeah. would all, or this semester, listen to me, of the semester. season, that would also be, Cross you tell what I've been there. thinking about? Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Um, well, I mean, we don't want her to be drop out entirely, but no, she no, be certainly not. Yeah. Certainly not. Yeah, I know. Marie, Marie says, uh, um, uh, she's with the green elves. She's having her honeymoon with the green elves in Doriath, which is of course <laughs> where everything happens, you know, with the, with the humans. So yeah. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. One of those characters who decides to finally go on a restful vacation to like, you know, the center of, uh, <laughs> right. Right. It's just like Die Hard or something like that. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, Stephen, cover, it would be interesting to have her get exponentially more and more important as the season continues. We have to pace ourselves, right? Because there's... she probably needs to get more and more important as seasons go. Yes. Yes, <laughs> by exactly. Season, by season. <laughs> yeah. 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 We do have to pace ourselves with that. But, um, but no, I mean, she'll, She'll she'll be there, Marie. As you point out, she, she's going to be. If we're going to have her in Osirian, she's going to be on the scene, uh, right? For uh, uh, some interesting part of uh, uh, the actions there. Um, <laughs> Lincoln says, "Goadriel is a John McClane figure." I had no idea I wanted to see that, but now I do. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's kind of just you know just throwing that out there as a little parallel. I, I you know. Um, yeah, um, but no, I, I don't see us using Galadriel as the central character. Uh, so far in my mind, Finrod is the one who is suggesting himself as the primary vehicle of this, uh, of this, uh, you know, sort of, or not vehicle, but I don't know, locus? I'm sure exactly how to describe it, but the, um, because he's both the do, the mover of it, but also like the one in which the changes. And so that was the same thing with Galadriel, right? She had to forgive herself. Uh, she had to be reconciled in a sense to herself and her, you know, her process was part of like, uh, like the, the healing that the Noldor themselves need, but she was also at the, at the epicenter of the whole Sindar uh, and uh, Noldor things. So whether it was her own change um, uh, and her, you know, her own issues with reconciliation and forgiveness or whether she was, you know, like a bystander and target of the question of, recon- you know, she was at the core of a lot of those things that were happening. Um, so I'll tell you one place to put Galadriel, uh, one place to put Galadriel where she could be sort of the, not narrator, but kind of the viewpoint of this would be in the frame. I don't know if we've, I don't know if anybody's on the forums talked about the frame yet, um, but uh, yeah, we've had we some talks, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to go to the frame yet, but no, you're right. There's, no, no, there's opportunity there to connect. Yeah. To I don't want to leave that out in terms of yep. rather than try to mush her into the main body of the season, that could be a place for her to be. Yeah. 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 Um, and, um, Rhiannon, totally agree. One of the perks of choosing Finrod as the that kind of focus character uh, in season five is that his oath uh, in the Dagor Bragalak, his oath to Barahir, um, 
could, I think, easily be made to represent in his mind a kind of culmination of this arc. Absolutely. I think that would be awesome. Um, uh, and really emphasize the significance, you know, set up the importance of that oath uh, and everything. I think that's really, that's really kind of cool. Um, yeah. Oh, Murray, very sensible for us to settle on the theme before settling on the frame. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. But, but yeah. I didn't figure it was verboten to say the word frame, right? You guys <laughs> no, are gonna, no, like, it's yell not. at me. It's oh, not. my God, you can't say that right <laughs> now. Not. We're not there yet. It's not. <laughs> it's not. No, that's just me resisting my own temptations. That's just me. It's like self-talk is like what that is, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. She said frame. Oh no. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, 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 that's just me avoiding the shiny object. That's what that is. All right. It's, I'm, I'm, it's become I'm... a new F word. Frame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, I agree. I mean, it, you're right. We do have the opportunity and someone earlier. I just on... wanted to bring it up as something yeah. that we could just, you know, Definitely. like, okay. I know we have to talk about it later, but it's like I said, instead of trying to like shoehorn her in mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. she's still going to have a very, prominent presence but not be in the main the main story true yeah no that would be interesting and certainly the question of change and relationship to change (laughs) in a lothlorian third age context is an interesting question right you know it's it's a very natural question um but um anyway yeah okay so um yeah, but I agree, Nick. It's 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 not shoehorning if she's on the spot already, right? So it's That's true enough. True, true enough. Yeah, it, we did already decide that um, um, that uh, Goadriel and Kelleborn were gonna we're gonna take their honeymoon right, in right. Osiria, and thinking that that was away from the action, right? Um, well, the shoehorning I'm thinking of is how big a piece you know we're shoehorning yeah, a big exactly. part for her, exactly, small absolutely. part. For her. So yeah, yeah, we'll see. Okay, all right. Cool. I'm, I'm cool with this. Let's let's move forward now because it's almost time to stop avoiding. The, no, in fact, it's entirely time to stop avoiding the question. Fingolfin. All right. Um, speaking of F words, no. Fingolfin, I... <laughs> all right. Let me just be up front right away with my problem. And again, maybe you guys will all convince me that I don't actually have as big a problem as I think. But I don't know how to handle Fingolfin at the end. I don't know how to handle his challenge against Morgoth. I don't know how to handle it. Because I want, I really want to depict... Okay, it's like, okay so ultimately my problem is I'm, I'm, I, I feel my heart at war with my head. That's, what I, that's the problem I'm having. My heart has always been moved by the heroism of his fight with Morgoth. Um, I have uh, always loved that's, you know, some of the, the images that are used in the description of his defiance and fight with Morgoth have been some of the things that have been most inspiring to me from the Silmarillion. I love that. But my head tells me it's an act of despair. Like what motivates him to go and do this? Um, it is a choice that he made. It is it. It is a choice motivated by despair that he makes in ignorance. There's a tragedy involved there that he believes they're gone. He believes it's the that the the results of the battle are not as bad as he thinks they are. He thinks all is lost, and he charges off. And yes. Again, I, 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 I redouble what I said about all of the ways in which I love his duel with Morgoth. But at the same time, 
it's also a form of suicide. He is choosing death. He is he's in despair. And I don't know how to be true to what I um we can't just make him look like an idiot. Right? We can't make him look foolish. We can't make him look dumb. We can't make I don't know. I just I'm not really um I'm not really sure how to handle it in a way that kind of is true to the situation that is described. I mean, it's not, although the act is very heroic, it's like, I don't know, tactically it's heroic, but strategically it's disastrous. I mean, at the end of the day, he throws his life away and accomplishes nothing. Um, I mean, okay. Morgoth walks with a limp for the rest of his life, so I guess that's something, but... Uh, he slowed I mean, him down. <laughs> sorry, what was that, Dave? I said he slowed him down. He slowed him down, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, I just... Um, he, he never he never left, uh, he never left uh, his, his uh, fortress ever again. Yeah. Well, no, he didn't, but he'd already done that. I mean, like... He's already making an exception to that policy to come out and fight with Fingolfin in the first place. Um, also, also, I agree with your point. It's like I don't, I don't want to change this. Like, I wouldn't want the on-screen portrayal to be one that looks that's like where the takeaway seems to be like you know, well, he died, but you know, he got that he. He he injured Morgoth fatally, and like Morgoth was, you know, I I don't want it to look like he accomplished something. Right. Um, hey, Nick has an I, interesting I, I, suggestion I, in that direction. Ooh, let's hear it. Nick's suggestion is: what if there's a change that has sort of outside the you know the text? Nick says: what if this destroys Sauron's confidence in Morgoth? We had talked about kind of wanting to open a wedge between Sauron and Morgoth, where Sauron is going to begin to kind of go off on his own and set up on his own. What if that's the moment when, um, when Sauron, uh, it does change. So it, it isn't pointless. Like what Fingolfin does, does accomplish something. Cause what it does accomplish is it shows that Morgoth is vulnerable, right? He is not unassailable. Um, that, that is true. And it's even like in the book, you know, even it seems significant that Morgoth, uh, is fearful, reluctant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a bad look. I mean, it's just, this is, you know, at the very least, it's like an internal PR disaster for Morgoth, right? I mean, he answers the challenge because he looks like a git if he doesn't. Um, And then he wins, but he loses, right? I mean, it's, it's clear who the, who comes out better in that fight. And it's the guy who dies, right? Um, so, I. Uh, it is possible, I think. Um, exactly, Nick. He only goes out because his lieutenants are watching him, and then as they continue to watch, you know, it's 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 kind of ugly. It's kind of ugly. Good, yeah. As Marie said, originally the thing that Sauron admired about Morgoth was his strength. Right. This is the guy who is getting stuff done. This is the guy who's not afraid to make the hard calls. This is the guy who's who will put things into action. This is the guy who has the power to make the change that we want to make in the world. Right. That was the whole rallying cry for Sauron behind Morgoth way back in season one. 
and now, yeah, can he can 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 Sauron still see the same thing when he sees Morgoth? Um, that I think is interesting. That I think is interesting. Um, so, um, I. The problem that I'm having is not necessarily with how do we depict, depict the fight. I get, once he re- is riding out on horseback, I'm fine with it, right? What I... The, the, the specific site where I'm struggling is... culminates in his decision to ride out and, like, what he says to people as he's riding out. But begins with how that interacts with his whole purpose. We have depicted Fingolfin as primarily he's being the one who is the primary advocate of the Leaguer. Right? Let's hold him in Leaguer. We can do this, everybody. Uh, I, as High King of the Noldor, that means I am like overall military commander, and I say, let us... Oops, sorry. Accidentally advancing slides arbitrarily here. Um, I... Yes, it's his motivation for going, Marie. That's the thing that troubles me, and that's the thing... I feel like we have to have an answer to that. Like, we have to show why he goes. and how. So, basically... Uh, so, let me explain a few bad scenarios that I can see unfolding, right? Fingolfin is the pillar of strength. He is the one who is saying, we can do this, everybody. We, can, we have beaten Morgoth, and we can continue to beat him. Um, through our strength we can hold back the forces of darkness and protect Beleriand and the rest of Middle-earth behind it. This is our, like, we accept this post. Uh, we are the watchmen on the walls. This is what we do, right? So that's Fingolfin at the beginning, right? And then he rides off to challenge him to single combat because he thinks they've lost. So what do we show Fingolfin staring out over the flaming... Um, you know, fields believing that, you know, his children are killed, that his people have, that his shining plan of we can do it, he's been proven wrong and being confronted with the fact that he was wrong and that they've lost his response to that is what? To die? To go out in a blaze of glory? Because we're, I mean, does it, is it just like, so I see that we're all doomed to die and so I might as well go out this way? Um, I don't like that story for Fingolfin. That seems like a crappy story for Fingolfin. I don't want that to be the story for Fingolfin, but I'm trying to think of another one that makes sense and gets him up there. Um, Tony says, and Rhiannon, I think you were suggesting the same thing. Um, Tony says, I have to think he believes he can win and that his winning is their only hope. So that it's more of a, right, as Nick says, he's shooting the moon, right? Um, If Fingolfin's strapping on his armor and saying, I'm going to go riding out against Angband and everybody else being like, okay, I guess we're attacking Angband and he's going to be like, no, 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 just me. You all stay here. I'm going by myself to beat on the doors of Angband and, and challenge Morgoth. 
I mean, again, like, what's the rationale? What does he say? If the thing that he says is, you have to stand here, but I can beat him. I think I can beat him. If I throw down Morgoth, we still win. Right? Um, if it's a risking, Nick, as you say, if it's a risking of his life, life on a hazard of even a very, very small chance of victory. But why would he believe this? The risk to me with that version is that he just looks delusional. And I know that the fight might seem to kind of justify in one sense his conviction, but in another sense, it's not going to justify his conviction. He is a very serious underdog in this fight, and he doesn't come that close to winning, right? I mean, he accomplishes stuff. We could change it so that, like, Morgoth is totally on the ropes, right? And it looks like Fingolfin is just a hair's breadth away from pulling it out and winning, right? Um, But by the way, I, I do. I think we should do some version of that. We could, we could. I not, 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 not has Morgoth on the ropes, but I, I feel like I think there should be one moment during the fight where you're like, maybe. Right when where, you can think it's not, just where, possible. Where it looks like he's about to win, but where it seems like maybe he might actually be stand a chance. Right, you can uh, just imagine that it's possible. Yeah. Um, now, so, several uh, people we... have said, Oakwig was saying, Marie was just saying, he's Fey. Yes. But I would say, to me, that doesn't solve the problem. To me, that labels the problem, <laughs> right? I have a problem with Fey. That is, Fey is hard to convey. Fey is hard to understand. Notice that we spun We've already had one Fey character doing Fey things, right? And that was Feanor uh, charging off to his death. And we injected delusion into Feanor's death scene, right? When he is Fey and charging off, um, uh, we played on the fact that this was his pride deceiving him, right? Um, he, the His Fey mood... And and part of this, I think, is also part of my problem with the whole Faye thing is I will confess, I don't feel that I've ever really understood it. Maybe I've just not read enough Norse poetry. That's possible. Um, maybe that would help me understand it better than I do. Um, I mean, I should probably read more Norse poetry anyway. Uh, but, but anyway, like maybe, maybe that's my problem um, that it just I just don't I, viscerally. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Um, but um, I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, yes. See, Chris Stevens. Um, it is easy for me to read Faye as despair. And therefore suicide. But it's not that. Like, that's too simplistic. Uh, the, the state of being fey, as Tolkien depicts it, is not that. Or at least it's more than that. It's just as much it's a disregard for death. But it's also 
running willingly to death. It's seeking so it's seeking death and it's disregarding death. And it's again, I I don't feel like in my visceral heart of hearts, I get it. I feel it. Um uh, so I, I just, I'm, I'm, and again, and this, I, I'm not proud of that. <laughs> like, I don't, I, th- when, when the day comes, you know, when I finally read enough and experienced enough and felt enough to get it, maybe there will come a day when I will read these passages in Tolkien and it will click for me, uh, and I will feel it. Um, but I haven't yet. And so this, it's one of the things that makes me struggle with this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, Brianna is suggesting that if I watched more anime, I might also get it better. Possibly. I, 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 I can believe that. I can believe that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess the question is, I guess the question is what, um, what, uh, what do we want the viewers to feel yes. when they watch this or witness this? Um, yes. And I kind of, in my opinion, I think it kind of should be, overwhelmingly, should be sad. Mm -hmm. It's tragic. It's tragic. Yeah. Primarily. So I guess the question is, what's the, how how do we deliver that appropriately? Because I agree, like, yeah, it is, it is, it is tricky. Uh, And I like, and I, and I think, and I think, and I think the, this idea about, um, about having an, an impact on Sauron is, I like that idea. Because uh, it, it, because I don't think that that's out of thin air. I think that that accurately reflects what the impact of this event was on Middle Earth in as portrayed in the books. That it does like, it does kind of reveal to some extent that Morgoth is vulnerable. Not not in a like str- militarily strategic sense of like right. a direct assault on him might succeed, but it shows like you know that that he's that he's prone to fear and pride and things like that. Yeah. So I like that idea. But I still, but I still don't want this to be like a, you know, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want the, 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 this, I don't want to portray like a scene where he, he sacrifices himself to accomplish a military goal. And that's right. what people take away from it. I want it to be like, I want it as he's right, as he hops on his horse and rides off, like, like I want people, I want ever I want the viewer to just know like, well, this is not going to go well. Right. Right. Uh, for this, for, this the end for of people Fingolfin. to say, no, don't go, don't do it. Fingolfin. Yeah. 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 No, that right. seems to me right. How do we do that in a way that he doesn't look like <laughs> Exactly. And or or to think about that whole that same question from the other angle, right? Imagining yeah. imagine for a second that no one in our audience has read Tolkien at all, right? And so they're just watching our show as a story that they're seeing for the first time. And we get to this scene and people are outraged, like, how could they do that to Fingolfin? Why did they just, th- he just threw his life away. It didn't even make any sense, right? Like, why? I liked Fingolfin and he was really strong and they just threw his life away and accomplished nothing. Like, why would he do that? Why would they do that to Fingolfin's character? Like, I can see people saying that, right? And I'm not saying that, and, and again, I, I, I can easily imagine the story unfolding in such a way that those concerns would be justified, right? They would look like that. Why don't, I don't know. Why, don't you th- why, why don't we ask that about the book? Do you, do, you think, do you think we've just drunk the Kool-Aid? We've just read enough Tolkien that we just know not to look at it that way? Right, we just accept. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's, to, it's, it's kind of a suspension of disbelief. It's a like, you know, 
yeah, it's kind of a dumb thing to do, but characters in Tolkien do this all the time, and it's it's heroic. It's heroic. Right, right. Is this is this is this moment qualitatively different from Aomer riding around the Gladden Fields after he thinks death that, take that, us that, all um, right now to ruin in the world's ending? Um, I uh-huh. think I think if how do these two moments compare? I think if there is one moment of fayness that I get, it's that one. Mm-hmm. I can. F- I can't feel along with Feanor. I can't feel along with Fingolfin. I can't even feel along with Frodo in the, like, departure from Shelob's lair. I, a little bit more, but I still don't totally get what comes over Frodo in that. And he's described as, Sam, anyway, describes him as being a, in a fey mood uh, there. Um, Amir? Yes. Death take us all right now to ruin in the world's ending. Um, that's the line where I start crying when I'm reading this scene and then I totally lose it, uh, when the, uh, when Aragorn leaps off the ships, uh, at the Harland. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the, th- what feels different for me, um, the reason I feel like I get that better is that Amir is boxed in a corner, right? Amir is put in this situation and he didn't choose it. And I mean, he chose to come to battle and stuff. That's not what I mean. But like Theoden is dead. Eowyn, like out of nowhere, Eowyn is dead. He thought Eowyn was safe at home. And now all of a sudden there she is dead on the battlefield, right? It's like the whole world has suddenly convulsed around him and everyone he loves is now suddenly dead. Right. And they're hopelessly outnumbered and surrounded on the battlefield. They're all going to die anyway. Half the people are all, are already dead. So all he has left. Right. Is ride now to ruin in the world's ending. Right. The, and that's it's it, it doesn't feel like suicide to me because he's going to die. Like, it's just a question of dying well at that point. Right. And Amir's resolve to die well, as well as he can on that field, seem has always felt to me like the most like positive thing he could possibly do. Like to me, Amir's reaction, though it is clearly Faye and he is clearly in a sense seeking death. That doesn't feel to me like suicide because he is, um, he is making the most like proactive choice that he can make. Fingolfin doesn't have to do it. Right. Circumstances. And you know, he's not in the same place. Right. Um, he rides out. Exactly, Nick. He starts in a place of safety, right? Amir, there's nothing else that Amir can do. He can die well or he can die badly. Fingolfin has the option of saying, let's pause, regroup, and fight again another day. And the thing also that, like, bothers me a little bit about his decision to ride off is I'm like, I, I leadership is something I think about a lot and I care about a lot. And I'm like, he's the king, Right. His job is to, I mean, like, there's a sense in which he's also, again, one way in which one could read it or one way in which one could turn it is that he's abdicating. He's abdicating his responsibility, right? Like, he doesn't have the luxury of throwing away his life like that, right? He's the leader for crying out loud, right? Um, and so there is an element of, of abandoning his post, it feels like, um, that bothers me as well, Um 
I remember I said my heart and my head. My heart loves the fight between him and Morgoth, um, but my head has these problems uh, with why he does it. Um, and Aemir is the leader too, Marie. But again, the people he's leading are all in the same position he is, right? Again, like Aemir's response is good leadership because under those circumstances, there and then, on that day, in that place, right? He, um, um, if he makes, if, if he does not choose to die well, then everybody else is going to die badly too, right? Um, he's not thinking about hope for his people, but it is also true that the only possible hope for his people is to fight on, right? As bravely and aggressively as they can, um, if they try to like back off and protect themselves, they're all just going to get slaughtered, right? So again, I, I think that Aemir's decision is good leadership as well optimal leadership in that moment. I cannot think of a thing that Amir could possibly have done that would have been better than what he did. Fingolfin? I mean, sure, he uh, he has... Uh, he does leave an heir, Oakwig. I mean, in that sense, it's not an utter... I mean, he's not leaving everyone into a void of chaos, right, when he leaves. And of course... <laughs> One can criti- criticize Aemir for not having made an heir already, for crying out loud. Mr. Bachelor into his uh, irresponsible ages. But anyway, um, I... I, got, I, got a, I got a counterpoint for you, okay. Corey. Okay. Here's, the, here's the, and this, this is, to some extent, this is me playing devil's advocate because I kind of agree with you. Okay. So I think, I think one thing we can probably agree on is that in, a, in kind of a weird sort of indirect way, Fingolfin is right mm-hmm. in the sense that like that, that their entire endeavor uh, to like besiege Morgoth is about as pointless as his, is his ride to challenge him. Okay. One-on-one. Right. That like he is uh, so perceiving the ultimate like, futility of it. Yeah. 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 And mm-hmm. there's a sense in which like, you know, yeah, what he's doing is kind of extreme, but it's also like, you know, I mean, why not? Because it's, you know, and I kind of wonder, I wonder if maybe that is an angle that we can play up just sort of like that, it, it, you know, I guess it is despair, but not not despair in sort of the not despair in like the, the kind of the way that Gandalf criticizes um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Council of Elrond, where it's like, no, no, like th- that kind of despair is pointless. But rather, it's sort of like it's like the realization that like this is this is a fruitless endeavor. The, the Noldor aren't, they shouldn't be here. They shouldn't be doing this, that they cannot win this way. Uh, and that the only way, the only victory will be the victory that comes from across the sea. Um, so, so, but I wonder if like, I wonder if, but I wonder if one way we could make that explicit, um, you know, for the viewers is if, uh, what if we give him some form of foresight? Um, Interesting. Uh, that he see, he kind of, He's he sees you know like not just he looks and looks on in their defeat and the ruin of of the you know kind of the the leaguer uh, and realizes like oh crap this is never going to work but like what if we actually give him explicit foresight where he kind of gets a glimpse into yes. how things are going to go yes. and realizes it's not going to be through military alliances and plans and battles but it's going to be through this like sequence of events um, and. I guess the question then becomes: So why? What does he go and kill himself in response to that? Um, right. And maybe, maybe we can kind of think on that a little more about like how, do, how does the, how does that 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 glimpse or that foresight <laughs> turn into this decision? Right. Um, 
but maybe there's some way that he realizes like by doing this he like that this is a this is the role that he can play as well like inspire his people or something. i don't know <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. No, I, this foresight thing is really interesting. And this, it, it comes back to uh, several people, Nick uh, uh, and uh, Rihanna, I think, uh, and Tony um, have been kind of talking about this, like back to the question of maybe he goes because he believes there's a chance, right? Uh, a tiny chance, but he's going not out of despair, not as a form of suicide, but as a desperate act of self-sacrifice, knowing that there's a 99% chance that he is going to die and that it's not going to work. But by golly, there's a 1% chance that if he prevails, he turns the tide. And if he doesn't prevail and turn the tide, the tide ain't getting turned. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 Maybe it, maybe it's a realization. It's a realization that like, this is in fact, the most useful thing that he could do. Like there's no point, you know, he's not abandoning his people because like, you know, his people, he's not doing them any good as King anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, Marie, Marie was uncomfortably quoting, you may triumph on the field of battle for a day, but against the power in the North, you know, that that now rises this. Yeah. I mean, if we had, we don't, if we have him quoting Denethor, I'm uncomfortable again, basically, is what I'm saying. <laughs> we don't want him there. Okay, but back to your foresight question. That, so, because, because, so, Dave, without the foresight thing, my counter argument, or not counter argument, but my problem with the, it probably won't work, but this is our only shot, is why the heck would he think there's a shot? Um, I mean, like, seriously, he thinks he can, he's, so, like, if I kill the evil god with, my little sword, then everything will be fine. But like, what earthly reason does he have for believing that he can pull that off? Other, I mean, basically, I think that if we went in that direction, the enormous risk that we would have to counteract is that he looks merely delusional. Like, you know, he's not despairing. Uh, he's just left our world, right, and is now living uh, in a different place, right? Uh, you know, that's... Um, that's uh, my concern there. But, Dave, your foresight suggestion is would be a way to counteract that, right? If there mm-hmm. is some reason, right, and because it, it doesn't have to be a rational reason, right? He doesn't have to be sitting there and saying, like... You know, I know of a secret weakness that Morgoth has that if I hit him right there, I can kill him. And so that, you know, it doesn't have to be like that, right? Nothing rational you know, about this plan. Um, but instead, like the the fulfillment of destiny, right? Um, yes. Yeah. 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 That, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's true. Maybe maybe he like like so many other uh, uh, famous characters in fiction. He gets a glimpse of things to come and he doesn't really understand what they mean. Yeah, exactly. He just knows like Morgoth's ultimate defeat is going to come through some kind of courageous act of some person from, you know, from his family. And it's like, well, let's give it a shot. Thank you for that transition, because that brings me to another interesting point. And perhaps this could be brought in to be relevant here. We're talking about foresight and stuff. So, um, and this actually is potentially a kind of transition to the Arathel discussion as well. 
if I had to list my short list of stories or story elements that Tolkien wrote in the context of his Silmarillion writings over the course of his life that does not make the final cut into the published Silmarillion, uh, when Christopher put that together, one of my top favorites is the prophecy of Olmo for Turgon, right? For those of you who are unfamiliar to this, let me recap this briefly. When, in the early days, like if you read the Fall of Gondolin story from the Book of Lost Tales, the one which was published, of course, in the very recent Fall of Gondolin publication, um, the message that Olmo delivers to Tuor to bring to Gondolin is not, as in the published Silmarillion, time to pack your bags and leave, guys. Right? That is not the message. It's time to pack up and leave. The message is, it's go time, Turgon. If you leave Gondolin and you march out against Morgoth, you will beat him. He will lose. He will be overcome and destroyed on the battlefield by you. The elves will win and the Valar will come to your aid. And Olmo is like, I pro- I'll deliver the Valar if you march out and attack him. And you, Turgon, will bring about the downfall of your choice, your going out into what seems hopeless, right? Marching out of your safe little place and against the apparently undefeatable power of the North, if you do that, you'll win. And the whole tide will turn. And that is the message that Turgon says, no thanks, I'll stay here in my cozy city instead. That's the message that he refuses. This is why... um, the first time I read that story in the Book of Lost Tales, I had this, like, one of those moments where I'm like, oh, that finally several sentences from the Silmarillion, several ma- mentions in the Silmarillion that had never made a lick of sense to me finally clicked, right? Remember that line, uh, while the Noldor are still in Valinor and right after Melkor has been released, right, and he's starting to spread dissension among the, uh, uh, the Noldor, there's that one sentence where the narrator tells us whenever Turgon passed by, right, Morgoth used to, like, get the chills, right? There's something about Turgon that totally creeped out. Morgoth, like, he had some foreboding of ill to himself whenever Turgon came around, right? And, and I never got that. Because I felt like that that reference was never paid off in the narrative. I'm like, okay, so why why in the end why does like according to the narrative of the published Silmarillion, I'm like, why why did Melkor why did Torgan give Melkor the heebie-jeebies? Right, I don't get it. Um, because he was the last one standing, right? Uh, okay, maybe right. Um, similarly, I always felt that. Um, the prophecy of 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 who are in the fens of Serech from you and from me a new star shall arise like okay well like yes a new star does in fact arise but the prophecy itself like from us shall come the one who shall deliver us right and 
Arundel like kind of does, but and this ultimately this comes down to like my Arundel problem, right? Um, because ultimately Arundel, I don't feel like Arundel pays off. Like I I don't feel like Arundel what what Arundel's cool. I like Arundel, but oh my he, god, I just heard gasps like throughout the whole entire world. Yeah, he doesn't pay that. off. He doesn't pay <laughs> off. And honestly, like. I'm telling you. He's got a cool star on his brow. He's got a, he's cool, but like, you know, come on, bring Tolkien back from the dead and he'd be the first to admit that A.R. Endel doesn't pay off. Why? (laughs) (laughs) And this is, this is, uh, Tony, aren't, aren't you the one who was talking about this? Weren't we talking about this in, uh, when were we talking about this? Exploring the Lord of the Rings, I think. I can't remember which. Uh, Talking about basically how it, Arendelle is still your number one, like, untold story that you wish Tolkien had finished, right? Tolkien never got around to telling Arendelle's story, right? The story of Arendelle is just never written. What we have is fragmentary, right? He was, in, in the early conception, he is the hero, capital H hero, right? Um, I, I mean... The language about, like, the prophesied birth of Arendel, it is actively messianic. Like, he is the child foretold who shall come and deliver the people. I mean, it's explicitly messianic language about Arendel. And then, like, what does he do? Yeah, he goes, conveys the message. I'm not trying to, like, say that, again, like, what he said isn't cool. And Tolkien does some awesome things with it, especially Gil Estelle, the star of High Hope, Rihanna, and I, I like that. Um, but, 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 uh, it never, he never wrote a narrative of Arendelle like any of the narratives of Arendelle he envisioned, and he envisioned many of them. Um, there was, there's a set of notes that I remember we talked about when we were doing volume two of the history of middle earth and the Mythgard Academy during the like latter chapters, which are dedicated to the fragmentary stuff about Arendel that never got written. Um, and there's this one really illuminating note that Tolkien wrote and it's an outline, um, like a table of contents basically. And if I'm remembering this correctly, it's something like this. I. Uh, the entire book of Lost Tales that he wrote, everything that he wrote, which is volume one and two of the of the history of Middle Earth, right? That was going to be volume one of the seven volume series. <laughs> the rest of the six volumes of which were going to be Arundel, right? And the adventures of Arundel and all of the things that he accomplished and everything else, right? That that is payoff, my friend. That is what the Arundel story was supposed to be, and we never get it. We, he never told it, right? Um, he kills Ancalagon, but I'm sorry. Ancalagon is, is a makeup date. You know, like, he's not supposed to kill Ancalagon. Who's he supposed to kill? Come on, Mythgard Academy students. Who is he supposed to kill? Ungoliant. Yes. He was supposed to kill Ungoliant. He was supposed to slay darkness itself. I mean, holy cow. Read the description of what he accomplishes in one of the only narratives, which doesn't even name him, um, 
uh, which is the second version of like the the intermediary version of the errantry poem between the old funny fairy little errantry poem and uh, the A. Arundel was a mariner poem that Bilbo sings the sort of intermediary intermediary version. Um, Stephen, you say she's not darkness itself; she's not Satan. No, not now. Not in the published version. In the Book of Lost Tales, Gloomweaver. Oh man, she was the embodiness the embodiment of darkness. She ate the moon for crying out loud. She caught the moon in her webs, right? Uh, I mean, holy cow. Uh, anyway, <laughs> and when she was huge, right? When Ungoliant was one of like the like primary forces of evil and darkness in the universe, threatening even to Morgoth and not just temporarily, um, then that's when Arendel was going to slay her in combat, right? I mean, oh my goodness, it's amazing. Um, whatever. All right, I'm done complaining about the Arendel story we don't have. Um, what we do with Arendel is going to be really interesting, uh, and I think there's lots of scope. But anyway, back to my original point, which will bring us eventually back to Fingolfin. Um, I, um, I love the prophecy. I love Olmo's original message to Turgon. I love that whole concept. It's not going to happen, right? Turgon's going to say no. Turgon does say no. So we don't have to say, well, gosh, if that occurred, the whole thing would be different, right? Well, we don't have to worry about that because he doesn't do it, right? But the point is that the prophecy is there, right? What if Fingolfin, Turgon's dad, what if that's the foresight that he has? What if he has some glimmer, even some message? Uh, what if Olmo gives him some kind of... Pre- I, that message has not been delivered to Turgon. Turgon doesn't know it, right? Um, Rhiannon, exactly. What if Fingolfin... If the desperate hope that Fingolfin is riding forth with is not that he personally can take down Morgoth, slay the god of evil in the north, and overcome Angband single-handedly, which makes him sound insane. Um, what if instead the desperate hope that one in a thousand chance that he's riding out for is that the Valar will come and follow him? That the Valar will come? Uh, that Manwe will come? Uh, that Tolkas will come if he goes? If he rides? Um, that there is some hint, some glimmer, some foretaste of the prophecy that will be delivered to Turgon. And that's why he feels it's worth going and why he believes that if he did that, that wouldn't be an an abdication. That would be good leadership, right? To say, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to take this risk entirely on myself. Nobody else come with me, right? Because it won't matter. The difference between, you know, a a, a thousand of us aren't more likely to break Angband than one of us, right? And if I go, you know, calling out upon the Valar. And of course, Manway comes. Right? Thorondor comes. Right? So we can work with that. Right? We can play with that. Uh, no, Rhiannon, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I hadn't thought of that. Rhiannon is suggesting that if Olmo gives him the message directly, uh, that it might seem like Olmo got, like, got Fingolfin killed. Right? Like, oh, yeah. If you uh, ride out, yeah, see what happens. No, no. Seriously. I'm sure it'll be fine. Fingolfin. <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah 
Yeah. Uh, no, 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 no. Oh, Clearly, God. we avoid that. But yeah, and Oakwig says, then how beautiful is it that uh, that Turgon, like Thorondor, bears the body of Fingolfin to Gondolin, and Turgon builds his cairn, right? Um, oh, I mean, the opportunities for if this is the prophecy that's delivered to Turgon by two or later on to having to. I'm picturing the scenes of. Turgon standing by the cairn of uh, his father, Fingolfin, and, and, you know, having heard the, you know, oh, man, like, just saying, I, I just saying, um, I think there's, um, there's, there's some possibility here. This is a thread that, to me, could sort of save, it. we'd have to be, I mean, I totally agree, Marie, we'd have to handle it very carefully, um, it can't be the full vision, right? I mean, obviously it can't be the full vision because he doesn't know it's Turgon who can do it, right? Um, but, yeah. And I don't know how we do it exactly. Is it just a, not a dream? Not a dream message he receives from Olmo? Because I agree, Rihanna, and we don't want to make it sound like <laughs> Olmo's entrapping him. <laughs> but um, what if it's just a, 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 a foreboding that he has? Like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so what's the point of Hoor's prophecy in the near ninth, Stephen? Great question. Well, I don't know. We got to figure out what we want to do with Arendel and how we want to handle the Arendel story. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. And, and I don't even know. Like I said, I got, and Caligon the Black is cool. But why is Ancalagon the Black? Tell me, what does it? What, what's the signal? What's the role of Ancalagon the Black in the story? Uh, he is dragged in as a dude to get killed by Arendel. Like that's his only role. Does he do anything? Do we know the first thing about? He's apparently black. He's the greatest of the dragons, I think, in some sense. At least Gandalf alludes to him as if he were. Um, and he's killed by Arendel. A- a- I mean, like he's a set piece. He's not. He's not. Um, uh, and he's winged. Sure. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, but anyway, like again, like anyway, anyway. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. We can. Um, I'm saying fair warning. I'm going to be a little inclined to beef up Arendel a bit and beef up his stories. I'm not saying we follow the proportions of that one adorable outline that Tolkien makes, which of course he never comes anywhere close to fulfilling the narrative promise of that outline. Um, but, um, but I kind of want to develop Arendel a little bit. I kind of want, it's not that I want to take out those passages that, you know, foretell the greatness. It's that I want to pay off those lines more. Right. Um, but, um, anyway, We'll get there. We'll get there. I don't get too distracted with Ancalagon the Black. But again, how many sentences does Ancalagon the Black get? Come on. Seriously. One reference and one sentence? Uh, my point is, there's work to be done there. That's all I'm yeah, saying. There's work to be done there. Um, deliver. Yeah. 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 We need to, we, we need to, we need to deliver. That's cool. That. We could make it a, we could make it a, uh, oh, am I up there? Where's my thing? Hold on. Oh, we could make it a spinoff. You know, the adventures of Arendel almost was a spin-off. Tolkien almost spun that off. 
Absolutely. He was going to have the voyages of Arendel be like all those voyages that he went on before he went to Valinor, you know, was like that was what volumes like two through six were going to be, you know, there in you the go. Book of Lost Tales was like the various and sundry adventures of Arendel as he explores around the world. So. So, yeah, uh, uh, lots and lots of uh, spinoff potential uh, for the voyages of Arendel. Um, I think it should be a, a buddy comedy with uh, Arendel and, and Caligon the Black. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, In fact, let's just take every every character from the Silmarillion that we feel like didn't get enough screen time and put, put them, them the all on. Put them all on Arendelle's ship together. <laughs> Half adventure story, half sitcom. Is that the, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. A dramedy. I think a dramedy. Yeah. Can't, can't fail. Can't fail. All right. Um, Okay. So I think we can work with this. Let's get to Aradel. So speaking of Gondolin and Turgon, let's talk about Aradel. Do we want to talk more about, let's, let's jump straight to the heart of the matter because the question of, why she ends up differing from Tur, like the premise of why she wants to leave. We've already, I think, said enough about that to go on with. We we have to refine that more when we get to those episodes. But um, that she is having a difference in vision and feels like Turgon either is already or is threatening to fall short of the original vision for Gondolin and that she decides she wants to go in a different direction. That I think we've already established pretty clearly. So how exactly we play that out and what the details of that are, we can work out later. Let's get to the meat of the question with Arvel. Yeah, Yikes. Almost like, a, a, you know, spinning the wheel there. Okay. What do we do with her relationship with Ale? How do we handle this? Arvel and the Stockholm Syndrome? What do we do? So, tough. I. Uh, what if? Here's my inclination. My inclination is. I would kind of like to take a crack at giving Arvel and Ail's relationship some depth. Here. Yep, I agree. Totally agree. I'd like to make it a love story gone bad. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Not a home imprisonment story or a bewitchment story or even a Stockholm Syndrome story. Um, nope, you're right. This is the way to go. Well, you know what I think. Um, not that I'm speaking from experience or anything, but there are people out in the world who are very able to to mold themselves mm-hmm. into extremely charming people yes. to basically get what they want, okay? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I can totally see Ale being this kind of person where there, it would be a love story. It's just yes. that he, over time, then, you know the underside sort of comes out. Mm -hmm. But I think when we first meet him, he should not be, you know, suspiciously, you know, questionable. I mean, we should see him the way she sees him. Right. Right. 
charming and 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 def, you know deferring deferring to her and you know um caring for her and i'm slayed at night and i can't think of all the words but anyway yeah yeah, yeah. i that's seems like that's the kind of line you're going down to yeah indeed, indeed. Exactly. i would say i would say even going beyond the relationship i i think we should make an effort to make him uh um uh sympath- somewhat sympathetic initially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that so that so that his agree. story is his story is more explicitly a story of fall, yeah. right? And that yeah. we as viewers also feel would the word be betrayed, or we feel what she feels, kind yes. of as the yes. story progresses. Yes, yeah. it feels like loss. Um, yeah, yeah. Margaret right. Joyce right. makes a wonderful point. Mar- Margaret says someone is finally interested in what she has to say. Absolutely, oh, she should yeah, good she point. should find an ale a partner finally. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, she's been trying to get things done. She's been trying, you know, she doesn't, you know, she, she thought like, basically she went to Gondolin essentially agreeing to be her brother's partner. Like the two of them were going right. to work together. Right. They had this project. She, she bought into it. You know, it was, it was his idea. Right. She, but she bought into it and they're she like, didn't okay. Just buy into it. She also got people to come to it. Yeah. Right? Remember? Yeah. No, like, exactly. Yeah. She was a recruiter as well as, as yeah. well as herself yeah, yeah. buying into it. And that, and, and, you know, and then that is not panning out. Right. right. So she's trying to go in a different direction. And then, so yeah, I've got to think um, we could make she's, her into like a, you know, a fainting Disney princess. Oh, God. Victim, no, please. Right. We, we could do that. We could make her like wandering into the like dark elf's domain and like seduced into his house and the door slams behind her and she's helpless to do anything. Like we could play that. But I, that's not to me a very interesting story, and especially since um, this is, we also have some very fascinating parallels here, right? Um, first, Marie, I wasn't even thinking of that one, but you're absolutely right. Marie says last season, Galadriel met an older man who had been in Middle Earth forever. Um, you know, and she, of course, was a strong-willed woman with ideas of her own, right? And uh, and she ends up getting together with Celeborn. Aradel. Is following the same? Are we are we going to have a similar kind of arc? Right? Are we going to are we going to end with a happy wedding at the end? It's not going to be a wedding at the end, right? They're not going to wait that long, but um, but yeah, is she a second Galadriel in that way? But of course, even more um, topically, or rather um, geographically speaking, um, this is Nan Elmoth, right? It's like Thingol and Melian again, right? Has she found her? You know, like okay, well, he's not exactly Melian. But that's kind of like she's more like Thingol, and he's the parallel. The parallel is between her and Thingol, and him and Melian, right? That she has found this like he has. She has wandered like Thingol did into Nan Elmoth, and she has discovered uh, this strange and mysterious being who is who was already there, right? And she falls in love with him and remains there in Nan Elmoth, shut away from the world for an indefinite time. Very close parallel to the Thingol and Melian story, right? But it, it's not the Thingo and Melian story, but it's parallel to it. There is also, of course, and Marie, exactly as I know I've already, as I've already mentioned, and of course I give props or perhaps I blame uh, Kate Neville uh, for this and the wonderful talk I've, I heard her give at a conference a couple years back. They're like the anti-Baron and Luthien story. Um, there's a lot of parallels between the Arathel and Aeol story and the Baron and Luthien story, um, except it's the, like the dark inverse version. Right. Uh, of that and, story. 
And one of the things about her that's different from the others is she's vulnerable for just what you said, mm-hmm. which is that she's frustrated that her vision and her mission and all right. of that. So she's like fertile ground for a being like Aeol, who is able to then, you know, mold himself just instinctively able to do it. It's not like he did it maliciously. He's not casting a spell on himself. You know, he just kind of intuitively knows what she needs and provides it to her. So it's this, so it's almost like it is the anti-Baron Luthien or it is the anti, because it's all, it's already grounded on neediness. It's like not a healthy base. It's not a healthy foundation to start with. Right. But we don't necessarily know that to start out, right? It, it's mean, not obvious. It shouldn't scream out right. to us. Yeah, no, exactly. Right. Um, I mean, there's plenty of ways to make it look really attractive, right? I mean, you know, he doesn't have to, we don't have to depict him as the creepy vampire-like dark elf lurking in the woods, you know, and everyone's like, no, don't go in there, right? I mean, he can be, you know, the, you know, tall, dark, handsome, and mysterious, right? I mean, there's, there's no, um, there's no reason we can't do that. And, and you're right, Marie, we showed Galadriel in a bad place and Celeborn being a sympathetic, good listener. Absolutely. Um, to show Aeol similarly, the difference is going to be in the counsel that he gives, right? Um, what is the place, like, yes, we had in both cases, we had, a strong-willed woman who was nevertheless at a point of crisis, right? Um, and who, in that moment, in that vulnerable moment, in the midst of her crisis, encountered this man who was a sympathetic ear and listening and sensitive and a wise counselor, right? The chief difference between Ao and Celeborn there is where they are leading them right i could see ale being driven more by his own interests his own personal you know in other words his his motivation would would color his counsel you know what i'm saying it's like Celeborn was i don't want to use the word noble but you know what i mean he was he thought beyond himself yeah yeah somehow we can see ale hints of because we need to see some hints of this right absolutely he is absolutely Absolutely. And that's ultimately that's going to be the obvious difference, right? Is that Ao right. is focused on himself, whereas Kelleborn exactly. is genuinely uh, selfless. I mean, he was focused on her and helping her, you know, and the, the kind of risk that he put himself in the way that he, right. um, you know, right. uh, uh, you know, even like put himself in a position where Thingol could plausibly accuse him of treason. Right. Right. For what he did, because but he did that for her sake. Right. He did that because he valued her more than he valued himself. Right. And in Ale, we can show the opposite. I got to tell you, this is a terrible thing, but I've got the Gaston song now in my head. (laughs) Ale makes me think of Gaston. So we got Belle and Gaston here. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Though, actually, now that you raise Disney's Beauty and the Beast, like Belle in the Beast's castle, like does actually suggest kind of, some kind of parallels, that, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah we should, she should pass a rose in a, in a glass, you know, just, we don't say anything. She just, pass, just walks <laughs> yeah. past it. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. Brian, at the end of the day, that's what we will see. And what are will eventually see too, right? That, 
Fundamentally, right. as Brian is saying here, Ale will, is primarily aiming to possess Arathel, while Celeborn is trying to help Galadriel achieve yeah. healing, right, and to strengthen right. her. Um, exactly, exactly, and that—that's the where we can show the two really deviating. Uh, you know, that really, uh, that really works. Um, I think pretty clearly, but, but here's the other thing. What if, what if Ale isn't just wicked? That is to say, I, I, I want him to be, I'm not trying to like make Ale into a, like an awesome and positive exemplary character or anything. I'm not going too far with this, but but I'm thinking about Maeglin, right? I'm 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 wanting to bring the third, you know, element into this situation, right? Um, how do we want to play Maeglin? Um, I, uh, <laughs> Margaret says, did that sword just move over there, Ale? Are your possessions enchanted, right? I was just having a conversation with your sword the other day, Aeol, and guess, it said some guess. disturbing things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, anyway, uh, basically, what? so there are a couple ideas that I'm toying with here. One is, if we have, ultimately, if we show Aeol to be the one who is like, you know, narcissistic and possessive and dark and, you know, that ultimately these, these sort of dark motivations which undermine any actual affection or whatever, you know, support that he actually gave to Arthel. And so we have that, you know, it kind of, it ends in a really bad place and she rejects that and leaves. Um, and Maeglin is kind of in between the two of them, right? But I could also imagine kind of going another way. What if Maeglin is worse from the beginning? What if Aeol is, I mean, has a lot of those issues. But what if, what if Maeglin is manipulating things maliciously all along? Like what if, what if he's not so much to blame? Um, what if Maeglin is the, is the actual, the bigger villain of the two? I don't know. I'm not sure what to, um, I'm not sure what to do with, um, um, uh, I'm not sure what to do with with uh, Maeglin's character exactly. I, I um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I, I was going to say, you know, Stephen H said this a little earlier in one of his comments. You know, that Ale would look upon Maeglin as a possession, and the type yeah, of does. psychology I'm thinking of Ale being would be like that. Now that would have an impact on Myglin, you know, because children, their relationship, their parents can be really impacted and how their psychology ends up being, right. you know, is so I could see Ale not being necessarily wicked, but self-centered, narcissistic, you know, of mm-hmm. him, you know, and the way he treats Myglin mm-hmm. could have Myglin actually become manipulative, become, right. you know, so it's not like Ail sets out to, or he's himself wicked to start with. Right, right, exactly. Um, I, um, yes, yes. Because um, I agree, I agree, Trish, that psychology would work if Ail is fundamentally the possessive narcissist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And Maeglin would rebel against that. Maeglin is himself a strong-willed person, and he would put himself in opposition to his father. I'm not your possession. You don't own me, right? That would be a very natural kind of... But, of course, he also, like so many children, as my wife always says, you don't take after strangers, um, is also <laughs> his father's son, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah, and that's so kind of what I was trying to get that at. Yeah. Kind, that same kind of narcissism and possessiveness, it shows up in... Maeglin, but because of his rebellion against his father, it takes a different form. Aeol is not ambitious, right? I mean, he's content to stay in Nanomoth indefinitely, right? All Aeol wants is everybody else to leave him alone, right? All Aeol wants is to not have anybody else mess with his stuff. Um, uh, So he is an inward-facing narcissist well as all narcissists are but i mean as far as his as far as his possessiveness is concerned right myglin wants more right myglin is not content to stay myglin feels constrained right um and there of course we have the parallel between arvel turgan and myglin ale right um where now it's myglin who wants out just like Aravel wanted out, not for the same reason. I'm not suggesting that the the, the reasons for those are the same, but we have a parallel situation, right? And but Myglen, he wants more, but he wants he wants Gondolin, right? He is ambitious, and as soon as he's there in Gondolin, he's like, someday all of this will be mine. Will be mine, right? (laughs) Exactly. Um, And he, of course, his own attraction to Idril, as Tolkien implies in the text, is chiefly uh, a, a um, an objectification of her, right? Dynastic she is a means to kind an of end. thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, she uh, she is the. I mean, remember, the, Tolkien actively says that Maeglin, when he's listening to her stories of Gondolin, is like, "Mommy, tell me the part again about how Turgon has no heir." but only a marriageable daughter, right? That's my favorite part of the story. Can you tell me that part again, right? Uh, I mean, that's, it's, this is not even, uh, it's his desire for Idril, uh, at least initially, is not, it's not even a kind of possessiveness. It's not, a, it's not even a kind of acquisitiveness. It's not even desire, like sexual desire. It's not even like, wow, she's hot and I want her. It's, 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 She's a means to an end, right? I have right. aims of be- I, I plan to become king, and she is the most obvious mechanism by which I can achieve that. In that sense, he's in love with her before he leaves non Elmoth, right? Um, <laughs> I've got people quoting Disney songs now. <laughs> right. Rihanna says that his Disney song is "I Just Can't Wait to Be King." Yeah, and Chris go. says, Chris says it's the Little Mermaid. I want to be where the people are. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. yes yeah exactly um yeah yeah anyway so um (laughs) that's where we took a very disney turn with this whole episode here but Uh, disney's not getting this franchise they may take over everything else they may (laughs) have marvel they may have star wars they're not getting this one right right fair enough not yet anyway not yet (laughs) uh, not until they launch Disney Planet, as uh, Doctor P- <laughs> they suggest in Doctor Who. Um, but um, anyway, um, so okay, 
Um, but again, but my question is still, what do we make of Maeglin? Tolkien implies that there's something twisted in him, that he is just like, he's, he's, he's a bad seed, right? Maeglin is a bad seed. He is not a tragic fall kind of character. There's just like, there's something wrong with that guy from day one, right? Um, is what Tolkien suggests. Um, I, uh, anyway, um, so, I don't know. I don't know. I'm kind of towing it. Another thing is, I will I will admit, actually, I lump Maeglin into the same category of, like, insufficient payoff. Again, mm-hmm. the emphasis on Maeglin and the significance of Maeglin's treachery, I mean, I'm not saying the fall of Gondolin isn't a big deal. It is a big deal. But in the published Silmarillion, it is way less of a big deal than it was in the older story. The fall of Gondolin is the end. Like, credits roll on, you know, the first age of the elves in Middle-earth. Whereas in the published Silmarillion, Gondolin is one of the last and one of the greatest of the numerous collapses. It's like one in a series of collapses of elf kingdoms uh, in Middle-earth. And it just, it doesn't it doesn't have the same kind of oomph. And again, so even the, like, you know, I was joking with Trish about this before we started. Like, do I think Maeglin deserves his own chapter in the Silmarillion? I'm not sure I'd give him his own chapter if it were me, you know? Um, anyway, I, I don't know. Like, as I say, I no, wanna... like you said, he's no worse than Cor- uh, Caligar or Curifim. They don't get their own chapters, right? Yeah, so exactly. It's like, yeah. I mean, there's, you know... Um, sure, he's a villain. Sure, he does bad stuff. But again, yeah, lots of people do bad stuff, and uh, they don't necessarily uh, get the same kind of kind of emphasis. Um, you know what? There's a spot for him on uh, Arendelle's ship. <laughs> <laughs> he could be captain with all the other he's all the, the other. He's that greasy crew member nobody else wants to hang out with. You know. <laughs> Whom, like, you're always hoping eventually is going to come to be accepted by everybody else, but he still keeps acting like such a jerk that in the end you're like, people are justified in not liking him. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an interesting put. Boy, there are a whole bunch of characters like this Mm -hmm. that are where um, their reputation among fans of, of these stories far exceeds their actual role in them. Yes, because Tolkien is so good at, like, the untold story, right? It's like suggesting the mythic significance of a story that he never narrates. Yes, yes, exactly. The Arendelle story being the biggest example. I mean, my goodness, the depiction of the Arendelle story, even like his trip to Valinor and stuff, is so short. Like, that is such a short treatment of that major moment, right? Um, uh, Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, uh, exactly, Tony. It is a flaw in the Annals style instead of heroic romance, the narrative choice that Tolkien made, started making back in the early 30s and stuck and chose to stick with when he returned to it after The Lord of the Rings, as we're talking about in, uh, uh, in, Mor- in our Morgoth's Ring discussion. 
Um, well, I gotta say his yeah. his lack of clarity in some areas has certainly paid many academic salaries over the years. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, like it's it's a wonderful, rich world, uh, you know, and, and the stories are so rich. You know, I mean, it's open not, to interpretation. Yeah, none of those things that I'm complaining about amount to like the Silmarillion sucks. It's just saying no, like, no, that, no. like oh, like the loss of what we don't have, and this right. is why yeah. my number one top of my list, and I've said this many times, if there were one unfinished work that Tolkien started and didn't finish in his life, and there's a whole bunch of them, but if there were one of them, if I could get my choice of one to, like, please resurrect Tolkien for the amount of time that it would take for him to finish this one thing, what would it be? It would be the fall of Gondolin, the 1950s fall of Gondolin, the one that's in Unfinished Tales that stops as soon as Tuor arrives at the gates of Gondolin. Absolutely, that would be my choice of more than anything else. <laughs> I'd choose it even over Arendel. I can live with Arendel as is because he's given me enough scope for imagination. But, uh, and actually that phrase, which is very Anne Shirley, uh, this is Anne of Green Gables uh, phrase, you know, scope for imagination that Dave, that's ultimately my answer to the question, right? Is that Tolkien is wonderful at telling yeah. stories that give scope for the imagination. Um, yeah, he really even is. if he doesn't tell them, right? Yeah, that's well, he true. kind of took pride in that too. I think, yeah. I mean, you know, it was he was conscious of doing that. Yeah. Okay. Well, but yeah, I mean, I think you know the choice of the Valar alone not being very clearly laid out mm-hmm. in the Ayer mm-hmm. story, as mm-hmm. I say, has paid many an academic salary over the years. <laughs> yeah. No, there's lots to talk about. It's, it's very rich. It's 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 delightful. Okay, so there's more that we can work out much more that we need to work out about the character of my Glenn, uh, and you know, the whole sort of trajectory of the story. Plus Marie was asking how much of him are we going to see? Are we just going to see him in that Elmoth? Are we going to see him in Gondolin? That question is kind of still open, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Um, I mean, how much Gondolin we get is going to be a good question. I think, uh, some, I think that we, you know, we need to be doing like meanwhile in Gondolin, but we need to, at some point, we're going to need to stop. I'm not sure it's. I, I'm not sure it's this season, though. I'm quite sure it's not this day. Um, <laughs> we need to stop and, and think like big picture arc for Gondolin. Like what are what are some of the places right. where we need to make sure we're touching base with them um, and showing mapping out that overall Turgon plot essentially. Um, but um, so one, one of the yeah. things we didn't get to tonight that I think is also key is in the notes that Marie gave us is the. Um, Midpoint. midpoint you know the key midpoint yeah. so that's something that's start, an open so, topic yeah let's start with that next time i agree I, I i i'm i'm i mean the way that i was thinking last time was that i think it seems likely that we could have a chronological split or manufacture if we need to a chronological split um right div- with those remember when we were talking about the, me- the, the the human stories and the two different generations of men that we you know we want to talk about the that, that the first generation, you know, Beor and 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 Haleth, right, and then the second, you know, the later generation where we're get, you know, we're getting Hurin and we're getting um, Barahir, right, and 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 those guys, right, and Andreth, right. I would include. Though we had talked about the possibility of having Andreth um, uh, being a connector between the two of them, possibly, or anyway, I don't know. We, we can that that'll depend on how we do the chronology. Um, but anyway, so if we if we do kind of divide it up into kind of two separate epochs like that, right, that's going to kind of determine where the hinge is. Um, uh, 
Do we have to resolve the Arthel story this season? Does Arthel have to die this season? That's a good question. I guess she does. I would say, does she? I was going to say not necessarily, mm-hmm. but... I guess she does. I mean, we got to get her out of Nun Elmoth before the Dagor Bragalock, I suppose. Um, uh, yeah. No, I guess we should. I guess we should. Um, but I'm not sure which side of the line to put that in. We could contain the whole Arathel Ale story in the first half of the season, for instance. But, I don't know. I'm kind of thinking, if we do jump, have a little chronological jump in the middle of the season, then that would explain, that would give Mygwen time to grow up, too. Uh-huh. But, um, anyway. Yeah, so, um, we'll start next session talking about the, trying to figure that out. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Let's, um, let's figure that out. So Maria's quoting some dates here. Bayar meeting Finrod in 310 and the battle in 455. Right. I mean, it gives us 145 years. If we have a gap in the, you know, we can have some time passing in the first half and in the second half and then a gap in the middle. Um, that certainly gives a fine amount of time for Aeol, or for Maeglin, sorry, to grow up. I was saying before, he only needs to be a moody, elvish teenager by the time we get, I mean, we, we, I, I think we only need a minimum of we were estimating last time what like thirty five years or something, um, yeah, something like that. Uh, but if we get more, that's totally fine with me, obviously. So um, anyway, we'll we'll see. We'll see. I, next time we'll start looking at the detailed outline, you know, episodes one through thirteen, and try to map out exactly how we'll lay out all of these things. We'll. Uh, we're going to have the return of our Gantt chart, I think, uh, for the next uh, session as we're going to be trying to lay stuff out. So um, we'll we'll come back to this here. My impulse right now is that uh, Arathel, I don't think I want to kill her off in the first half. I, I think uh, I think having the dividing her story into, itself into two halves actually might be kind of interesting. The whole separating from Turgon and joining to Aeol half, and then the birth of Mygl- culminating in the birth of Mygland, right? And then the whole Mygland and I decide to leave, and then you know, the now obviously uh, emotionally and physically abusive husband shows up and tries to kill us both, thing happened in the second half, basically. In the second right? half, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. That's kind, of, that's kind of right now where I would lean with that. I, I, I mean, I can see the death of Arathel as, as an interesting sort of turning point, but it, it, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. In the end, I'm not sure I like that. But anyway, we'll sort that out next time. It'll be easier to be able to try to decide this when we're laying things out a little bit more clearly. I kind of prefer, I mean, we do tend to have a pivot, and sometimes it's real obvious, like it was in season two, like the elves arriving in Valinor was our obvious pivot. Um, but, uh, but sometimes, to me, it's really more about seeing the whole scope of the shape and, and looking at what's there and saying, okay, like, given the story that is unfolding, where is, like, the pressure here? Where is the breaking point? Where is the turning point? And again, to me, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be the um, the, you know, it's going to have to do with the generations of men and with the change, with this theme of change that uh, that we've been talking about. Um, so yes, Rihanna, it well, could very I'd well be Finrod's re- change of perspective. Uh, I'd had the same thought as Rhiannon, which is the Atherbeth could be. Yeah, yeah, 
figure pivot. That'd be really interesting um, uh, to have that 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 pivot point be Finrod's realization, right? That mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, this it's not going to pan out the way that he thought, and that the world is not what he assumed it was going to be. Essentially, right? Big picture, right? Okay, awesome. Good work. We did a lot of stuff. It's getting late. We got to let folks uh, sleep here. Those of us, those who are attending live, uh, thanks everybody as always for your suggestions and contributions. Could not do this without you. You guys have, uh, you guys are the ones who came up with all those theme ideas uh, that we've yeah. been discussing, and it's fantastic. I never would have thought of that without your suggestions. I uh, love the, um, love the discussion. Uh, that uh, that we've been having here, I think this is uh, uh, this is fantastic. So, looking forward to next time. Uh, we'll be uh, uh, we'll be you know getting into the details and mapping stuff out here next time. So I'm I'm excited about that. All right, thanks everybody. I will say as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed. <laughs>